ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. I'm really excited to have my guest on tonight. You guys have probably seen him on other podcasts. He's a friend of Terry Lovelace, and he's an amazing author. I have with me Bruce Solheim. Uh, let me, he's the author of Anzar the Progenitor. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're all, he's also the author of the books, The Timeless Trilogy, which were about his paranormal life as, as you know, from growing up. Let me read you his bio. He, and he also is the, the, uh, the author of the amazing alien reptilian uh, comic, Snark. So this guy is just amazing. And I'm so happy to have him on the show, but I'll read you his bio. Bruce Olaf Solheim was born in Seattle, Washington, to Norwegian immigrant parents. Bruce was first person in his family to go to college. He served for six years in the U.S. Army as a jail guard and later as a warrant officer, helicopter pilot, and is a disabled veteran. Bruce earned his Ph.D. in history from Bowling Green State University in 1993. Bruce is a distinguished professor of history at Citrus College in Glendora, California. He was the Fulbright Professor and Scholar in 2003 at the University of Tromso in northern Nor Norway. Bruce has published 12 books and written 10 plays, six of which have been produced. The Bronze Star won two awards from the Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival. The Epiphany was commissioned by the Kingdom of Norway and funded for full production run in an original American cast. Bruce is the co-founder of the Lockdown Theater, which has produced four streaming plays, online, live with remote actors during the COVID-19 pandemic. He has lived a paranormal life since the age of four, having experienced angels, demons, ghosts, cryptids, telepathy, psychokinesis, mediumship, and alien contact. Bruce has published a trilogy of paranormal books about his personal experiences, Timeless, Timeless Deja Vu, Timeless Trinity, and most recently a public push, excuse me, public, a book about his contact with ancient alien mystic Anzar the Progenitor, who's like an ancient alien. Bruce has published two comic books featuring an alien hybrid character named Snark. Bruce is married to Ginger and has four children and two grandsons. Bruce, thank you for coming on the show. How are you? Oh, I'm I'm doing great. Uh, thank you for that introduction and that that kind uh, bio. Uh, I, every time I hear it, I go, "Who is this guy? I want to meet him." And then I go, "Oh no, that's me." Oh I, man, it sounds like too much. I I, 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 <laughs> I wish I could I, get into. I wish I could. How do I want to say this? I give you so much credit for your writing skills. Like I, I want to start writing at some point in my life. And I think, you know, I'm 41 years old. I think, you know, with all the knowledge I've acquired on alternative media, I think it's a good time to start because, you know, I, I have all this knowledge about, you know, like I said, alternative media, but like, I just can't get the motivation. I have motivation for my podcast. I just need to transition that into writing. How did you yeah. get, the, when did you start getting motivated to start writing? Has it always been something that you've been able to do or? Yeah, I, I've been writing since I was a little kid. You know, my parents got me a typewriter, I think when I was eight years old. And I, I remember in junior high, I was the only boy in the typing class because I really wanted to get good at typing. And uh, so I could type fast. And so I, I've been writing uh, for a very long time. And I, you know, I was writing uh, short stories and, and poetry and stuff. And, and uh, I, I just have always been writing. It's been uh, an outlet for me uh, because I was the youngest and my brother was nine years older. My sister was 15 years older. So they were out of the house for a long time after, you know, when I was growing up. So writing was a way for me to, to connect to those those deepest thoughts that I had and 
the advice I'd have for you is just, just start at any point. It doesn't matter. Even if it's just a few words, you know, just keep a journal, do something. And, and uh, the, the, something will strike you that you just have to write. That's what always happens to me. I don't have like a master plan. Like I'm going to write this and that usually it's just, this is what I have to do. I feel compelled to do it. And then the other thing is to be bold and, and, and take chances because that's what readers love, you know, to, to, you know, a a lot of authors make the mistake of trying to uh, do what's maybe popular or what they think other people might want, but what, uh, what readers really like is authentic voices where people are just unafraid to just let it, let it out. And, That's uh, amazing and advice. Yeah. I, 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 sorry, go ahead. No, I just, I just think it just to, to, and I know it's hard to get motivated sometimes. I, I don't all, I'm not always in a writing mode, you know, so I'll do something else to inspire me. I might listen to music or in your case, you know, doing a podcast, something somebody says may trigger something that'll just all of a sudden you say, Oh, I got to start now. I got something I got to do. And next thing you know, you're, you know, you're writing and publishing stuff and, and uh, it, it's, it's great. You know, it's exactly what I've always wanted to do. And it, and it makes me very happy. And I think, I think some it, of the stuff you write about is amazing. Like, um, and, and the fact that you've had this paranormal life, it's, um, I, I haven't had a paranormal life. Like I, I've never had a paranormal experience. I've never had an, an ET contact experience. So I really looked up to the people who have, and I'd love to have you guys on my show, you know? And mm-hmm. uh, I think we, we started to talk about this before the show and I wanted to get into it. Um, I think you, what I was saying is you guys like you, Terry Lovelace, Aaron Montgomery, um, I can name about a hundred other contactees that come on my show. You guys are the real reason for disclosure. You're, you're bringing the disclosure and we already know it. I mean, us ufology yeah. fans, people who are fans of ufology, we already know it. it's not like we needed a government report. And what was right. funny was like when they said we need more research, well, mm-hmm. they're never going to get it because the ETs chose to come to you guys. They didn't yeah. choose to go. They don't want to go to the government because I think past contracts with the government have failed. Or, you know, maybe, I don't know if that's true or not. What do you think? Well, I, I, I think you're right. I think that we, we can't wait for the government to come to us because when you think about it, the word disclosure is very other directed. It's like somebody is disclosing the truth to you. They're holding it secret first, right? And then they disclose the secret, right? We already know what the, the we already know the truth. So it's, they don't have to disclose anything. That's why, uh, Anzar, who I communicate with on a on a uh, very frequent basis, tells me it's it's revelation that we're involved with, not uh, disclosure. So revelation and everything that entails. I mean, you know, in in the uh, you know the Christian tradition, there's the Book of Revelation, which is pretty scary. You know, the end times, but this idea that the truth is revealed to you, your to you know the, the divine truth, the ultimate truth is revealed to you as an individual person. And you share it and others share it and we share it together on your show or, or, you know, like Terry or Aaron or anybody else shares what they know. They reveal what they know and everybody else is then emboldened or is uh, uh, empowered to do the same. And then we'll, we'll find out, we'll, we'll put all the pieces together. We don't need people in authority to, to tell us what the truth is, because like you said, we already know what, what's true. So that's why I prefer to call it, um, revelation because if you think of disclosure we have to sit here just kind of twiddling our thumbs waiting hoping that the government's going to tell us something and then they disappoint like they did with that 
uh, that report, which it has a few little things if you can read between the lines, but but uh, is, is really kind of disappointing overall when we know there's so much more. And well, it, it seems kind of misdirected too, because the word threat, I think, appears eight times. And, and I know there's those in the UFO, uh, you know, the ufology community who look at it, you know, all aliens are bad and a threat and they're, you know, whatever. But there are those who, you know, myself included, and, and I don't, you know, I, who knows who's actually right? You know, we all have a little piece, right, of the information. So the best of my knowledge, what I know, there are some ETs that mean to help us. There are some that are kind of neutral. And then there are some that, are, you know, they don't really care what happens to us. Uh, so, you know, they're not exactly friendly. So uh, I'm not saying necessarily they're evil, because that's, that's kind of relative. But but you know they, they they're you know they're just like we are they're very diverse in who they are and what they want and what their uh, agenda is as far as i understand yeah i, I think you're you i'm mean, you're exactly right i mean i don't know if their government had you know handshakes with ets in the past but it seems unlikely because you know i've heard these i've heard these rumors that eisenhower met with aliens and stuff like that and i i don't see what we would have to offer an alien species and every time that, you know, I have heard this, I, you know, the government has wanted a technology as compared mm-hmm. to, you know, they, the, the ETs can give us something else, but I've heard the government there, they seem like they're more of a threat. And, and, you know, I'm not trying to be some outlaw or something, but they, they seem like they're more of a threat than the ETs because they're always trying to shoot down the ETs. They want the technology. That's why I think the ETs have chosen to come to the contactees to get their message across. Like, we're we're destroying the planet, stuff like that. I mean, what, what are yeah. your what are your thoughts? Oh, I think I think you're right, and I, you know, it's almost as if you read my mind right there. And, and I, this whole idea of you said you haven't had paranormal things, I I think I could probably convince you by the time we're done talking that you have had paranormal st- stuff happen to you. But anyway, we'll, we'll get back to that. But let me share what Anzar told me. Uh, it was a couple months ago. He said, I'm going to read exactly because I make transcripts. I, I take these spirit walks. I record everything that I hear. I record my own thoughts as I'm in this meditative state, as I'm walking, doing my meditation. I come back and then I transcribe it. So I got like 300 pages of typewritten notes uh, from the last three years of uh, talking to Ansar. But a couple months ago, he told me this, and it fits right into what you're saying. He said, uh, extraterrestrial technology and wisdom are precious gifts for all, not a strategic advantage for the few. Yeah, it makes sense because that's what the government yeah. will want because they want to, they're mm-hmm. thinking only in terms of Earth. They're thinking we need to get ahead of China. We need to get ahead of Russia instead mm-hmm. of trying to make peace with these countries. Like, why do we have nuclear bombs? Like something that could wipe out a whole race of human beings. It, it just seems like so childish like you know it's like uh it's like a a little kid playing with matches yeah it it is it is very foolish and that and he also shared with me that the alien technology cannot be used to harm anybody and uh, amazing so and and so that makes sense because you hear about these uh ufo sightings where nuclear missiles are disabled you know that like they go offline and stuff so they have the ability to stop us from destroying the planet if they want to if they want to intervene they can now it's not like they'll intervene for every little thing because obviously they're not doing that but when it comes to the biggest things 
I, I think, you know, like nuclear weapons, I don't think they're going to allow that to happen. At least that's what Anzar tells me. But I, I think you're right on with this idea that, um, you know, that, that, that our government, and not just our government, probably foreign governments too, are trying to figure, and just to put a real fine point on it, and this was actually from a friend of mine who's a retired FBI agent. He told me that the government is busy trying to figure out how to strap a bomb to this technology. Yeah, that, so that, that sounds a that's little, how crude crazy. the thinking. Yeah, that, that's how that, crazy they are, really. You yeah. know? And it, isn't it just like those old movies, you know, the, from the 50s and 60s? The aliens come in. What's the first thing we do? We send in the rocket launchers and the tanks and we start blasting. We don't even know what technology they have. Well, obviously, they're superior technology. But when you think about it, you know, they, you know, going back to the handshake thing, they are obviously way ahead of us. Who knows how far in terms of their evolutionary, you know, everything they can do and their technology. Why would they, you know, make an agreement with such duplicitous creatures as ourselves, yeah. especially our government officials? And I, you know, I, I, I'm not very political at all. I, I just kind of, you know, I, I just think that the a lot of our leaders, and this is at every level and probably in every country, but I can just speak about, since I'm an American historian, <clears throat> from, the, from the city, municipal, county, state, all the way up to national government, our, our leaders are, it's a very poor crop of leaders. And I, I don't care if the Republicans, Democrats, independents, we seem to have very poor crop of leaders. And I think I, I agree Democrats and I think everybody could agree with that. You know, it's like, wait a second. The, these are not superior statesmen or stateswomen. You know, these are people who are, something went haywire somewhere along the way. And maybe it's the system that just breeds that kind of thing because it's so corrupt. But um, why would they these incredibly evolved entities beings want to be making <laughs> agreements with, with, with these people, you know, it's, it's uh, th there's a reason why they're contacting everyday people who are just normal people like, like Terry. I mean, Terry has a lot of credentials and credibility uh, and so does Aaron. These are professional people, but they, they contact housewives and, and, and bricklayers and uh, bakers and young people, children, even sometimes, you know, I mean, it's, these are, it, it's all across the world. And it just, it, and it, uh, it they want to communicate with regular people. I, I, I think so too. But I, when I look at the abduction phenomenon, it's, I can't mm -hmm. understand it. And I don't think I ever will. And because I'm mm -hmm. not an, an abductee myself, but looking at it from a historical perspective you have people on both sides of the coin you have people who say mm -hmm. they're traumatized but then a yep. lot of times that trauma turns into something spiritual because they don't understand it at first and then you have people who are contactees who enjoy it so it's like it's very hard to gauge but i have yeah. talked to people like mary rodwell who's a, um you know a, an et contact therapist and i've talked to um other other people in the field that I've interviewed on my program, the niece of Betty and Barney Hill. Um, mm -hmm. I, I can't, oh, cool. Kathleen Martin. Yeah. Kathleen yeah. Martin. And she, but what the, the point I was getting to is they both said that they, they there was this poll done and it said that 85% of ET contact is positive, or they mm -hmm. said that they've had a positive experience. Or do you, yeah. do you think that's agreeable? Well, I, I think that may be true. I, you know, I, I know for myself, that's the way it is, but I can tell you this, honestly, it's the most in, incredible experience and also the most uh, traumatic at the same time. 
Now, I, I, you know, I specialize in American history, sp specifically America's wars, and uh, I'm really uh, uh, focused on war on war veterans and PTSD and that. And one thing I've noticed is that you could have two guys in the same unit in the same firefight in the same place, and let's say Vietnam, for instance, one of them can process the whole thing, put it into context. Hey you know, it was, it was a terrible war. We did, we bo both sides did terrible things. We're gonna, we're together now let's heal, you know, and the other one will not be able to forget it and, and just let it <coughs> impact them in their lives in a, in, and and develop serious PTSD and, and symptoms and, and problems the rest of their life. The same, the same people and nobody can predict who will react what, what way there's no way to predict this person will get PTSD. This person won't. So I think it's the same with with contactees. It is such a, a mind blowing experience. You know, my first one that I can remember was at age six, and um, it was so traumatic. From even though it was a rescue, because there was a child molester in the neighborhood, and the ET saved me wow, from this child molester. School, what, what happened? Well, there were uh, neighbors that this is in Seattle. Uh, we I grew up in a neighborhood that was uh, on a hill near a Nike site, you know, a nuclear missile site uh, that they had. Uh, and, uh, you know, ETs like to monitor those activities. So we were just like- Did you like ever a, see a lot of, um, did you, well, I didn't mean to interrupt you, I'm sorry. Did mm -hmm. you ever see a lot of uh, UFOs around that time? I I think I did, although I, I can't tell you specifically. It was just part of my life. I think it, it might've been so normal that maybe I didn't even notice. Yeah. But I but this, this, this particular incident in 1964, uh, when that Nike base was still operational, uh, there was a, uh, a family that lived above us, and they seemed like a normal family. They looked normal. Every, they had kids, man and a woman, you know, wife and a husband. But the the guy was a weirdo. I mean, he was a, he was a child molester, right? And I my parents didn't know that, so I would go up there to be babysat. Now he did weird things, and I he didn't do anything weird to me because I was even as a six year old I was very suspicious because he acted like a kid, and when kids see adults acting like kids, you know, being immature like that, you get kind of nervous. And I got nervous, so I didn't you know fall victim to that. But it was still I needed to get out of that situation. So that's how Anzar and ended up being Anzar. That's who contacted me. Wow, and to told me I didn't have to go up there anymore. But when I saw him in my backyard is kind of like a hologram. You know, he was a very tall alien, you know, with the upside down teardrop shaped head with the long eyes and the robe. And I knew I told him, you look like a monster. Why should I believe you? And, uh, you know, that's what a kid would say. You see something like that. And he said, I'm not the monster. That man in that house up there is the monster and you need to stay away from him. And I'll make sure you don't ever have to go up there again. Uh, you, you just mentioned to your parents, just say you don't want to go up there and they will totally agree. They won't even ask you why or anything else, which is what happened. And, uh, and anyway, it was a rescue, but I was six years old and it was so traumatic for me seeing this, having this happen that for two years, I had to go to speech therapy. I, I couldn't talk. I, I would try. I could talk fine before, but after this experience, I suddenly developed a um, stammering and stuttering so bad that I, I couldn't communicate. I, and, or if I tried, I would be teased, you know, so that just made me go in farther. And uh, so I had to be pulled out of class every day uh, for two hours, for two years. 
out of my uh, you know elementary class and uh, went through speech therapy. After two years, I was able to you know figure out the way to to communicate. Now I still in my brain. I, I know when it's coming when I'm and I teach for and I talk for a living as my wife says, I couldn't talk then but now she can't get me to stop talking right I mean that's what I do for a living. But I still feel that in my you know somewhere in the circuitry there of my brain, I'll get to a point and I'll go okay this is where I'm going to have trouble with a word but I, I've figured out uh, like shortcuts and ways around it so quickly that you don't even nobody would even notice, you know that I was about to stutter or whatever. So I figured out I, 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 just, I wanted to ask you about that because like, mm-hmm. I, I don't think I, I, I'm just, I don't mean to bring up myself, but I, I was watching the last podcast I did. And I noticed sometimes I have a stuttering thing. Like uh, there'll be times like today where I can have a very fluent conversation mm-hmm. with you and, that, and that's fine. That's what's happening now. But my last podcast, I was like a, bu- a stuttering, bumbling fool. Did you have things like that or, or was it all the time? Well, f- for that two-year stretch, it was so bad I wouldn't talk. That's how bad it was because I just, I, you know, people didn't understand. Luckily, I had a teacher who was very intuitive and said he needs speech therapy. So they brought in a speech therapist, and there were a couple of other kids that had some problems and so other, you know, not necessarily stammering, but other, you know, speech uh, impediments. So uh, I, uh, uh, you know, that was successful, but I figured out a way to, uh, to, to, to bridge around or get around that stumbling block in my brain. So it's a very real thing. And the thing is that most people that have this kind of thing are, and I'm not bragging about myself, but are, are usually highly intelligent people, but other people think, Oh, they're stumbling and bumbling. You know, they don't know what they're talking about. It's because your brain is going so fast and your mouth can't catch up with it. And it's, you kind of get the, the, the two get disconnected. So what you have to do is just, keep them connected and sometimes just slowing down a little bit, taking a pause, you know, that, that helps. And I, you know, cause I teach, I have to give lectures in classroom in front of 45 students, which is kind of a, when I first started teaching, it was terrifying, but I figured out that the only way I could succeed is to assume it's just like you and me talking just one-on-one and that relaxes me. Then I don't have to, you know, think about, oh my God, there's 45 people here watching me. They're watching me. They're watching my every move. If I stutter, they're going to make fun of me. No, I, I, I relax and then it flows. And if I do get caught on something, I'll just quickly switch to a different word or something else. So it's still there in there, but I've now it's almost like I seamlessly keep going without, you know, I make the adjustment so quick that it, it doesn't, uh, it, most people don't even know, but it's, uh, yeah. And it, and it's, it, I can't, it, everybody's a little different, but that's, that's what happened to me. So it's evidence, physical evidence of the, the trauma of a, an exposure or contact. And, and, uh, I, I did some research on one of the ways that people develop stuttering and stammering. And one of them for children is a traumatic experience that, that can trigger it, uh, for some people, it's it's some kind of internal thing, you know, more of a physiological thing, but uh, in, uh, trauma, psychological trauma, can trigger it too, and that's what happened in my case. So, um, anyway, that that was my my first uh, experience. So it was it was positive. And back to your original thought that uh, what was it, eighty five percent or eighty uh, percent positive experiences. Uh, everybody's different, you know. One person's positive experience, what they put in context, is positive could be another person's 
you know, life-altering devastation that they can never get past. You know, they could have the same thing happen. And, and uh, I, I've I found that to be true. And I, and I don't tell people that they're wrong. If they tell me this is, abs- they're so evil, they're so bad, this is what happened to me. I don't argue with people. I said, no, to you, I'm, they are. That's how you feel about it. But ultimately, hopefully they can get through that and try to figure out a way to make it more positive. And, um, I, and, and it's not easy to do. And it's, it's difficult for war veterans. And by the way, I did some research on, uh, on PTSD and contactees. I used the same uh, survey that they use for combat veterans in the VA. When you go to the VA for you're having difficulty with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, they give you a, uh, um, a series of questions, right? That, that if you, uh, the way you answer it determines a, a, a provisional diagnosis of PTSD. So then they can put you into the right group or right counseling. I gave, I changed it just slightly. So uh, for our members of our CERO community, the Close Encounter Resource Organization headed by Yvonne Smith, they're all contactees, all people who've been abducted or contacted. And um, I gave the same survey to them with minor modifications so that it's not combat, but like alien contact. And I found out that 59% of them could get a provisional diagnosis of PTSD from the VA. Wow. Based on the same criterion. And it's very strict criterion. It's not just like a ultimate score. There's like different sections and you have to score a certain amount in each section and some of them are kind of not trick questions, but those that kind of catch people that are trying to fib about it. And, uh, and, and that's uh, even higher than most people that have been in combat, well, if you which think is about pretty it, impressive. You're, you're, you're dealing with this thing. You're trying to live two lives. Like you're, the contactee is living two lives. They have their mm-hmm. day life where they usually have a job. And mm-hmm. then at night they're being taken so they're getting no sleep. That's one of the one one of the minor problems. Mm-hmm. Then the, tra- the the actual trauma of being taken, mm-hmm. you know, by God knows who and God knows what. You know, mm-hmm. we still don't understand the phenomena completely. And right. so that's two big strikes that w- I could see that would cause the PTSD. And then, you know, I don't know what else, but I can see the, you know, the lack of sleep and the the the. The, the the contact experience itself and being possibly being experimented on you know all yeah. these, a lot of these abductions end up ending in an experiment and is 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 that what your questions like had to do with like it 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 more had to do with just the uh the symptoms trying to ferret out the symptoms that people have as a result of it um and the thing about uh, you know not to not to downplay combat vets and what they've gone through because obviously they've suffered a lot and you know I I'm a veteran myself but uh, not a combat veteran but a veteran uh, and I, I had a lot of service oh thank you my That's dad for... was a Vietnam vet like so I I, I oh I, I have a lot of respect for veterans yeah well I, I I think that my brother's a Vietnam vet too and and he suffered quite a bit. Uh, or does continue to suffer. But the, um, the thing is about with a combat veteran, they don't want to talk about their experience either, unless it's with other combat vets. They don't want to talk to their families about it generally because they don't want to re-traumatize people. You know, your dad doesn't want to talk to, or a dad doesn't want to talk to their child about what it's like to be under fire usually. I mean, that's not something they want to deal with. Uh, but it is socially acceptable for people to say, I'm a combat veteran and I need help. At least now it is. 
post Vietnam, it's gotten better where you can say that. But that's not true for uh, alien abductees. You can't just say, you know, I was abducted by aliens and I really need some help. You go into any psychologist's office, unless it's a very special psychologist, they're going to think you're delusional and that, you know, that, that you're psychotic and that you're schizophrenic or have all kinds of, you know, preconceived notions about you. It's not going to be generally accepted. If you do the same at work, uh, you know, like if you're at work and you say, hey, I was in Vietnam and I had a really rough time in a lot of combat and people, and, you know, that's why, you know, I'm a little testy and jumpy and, you know, and, and people say, okay, I can understand brother, you know, that's, but you say, uh, yeah, the reason I'm kind of testy and jumpy and a little irritable is because I was abducted by aliens when I was uh, six years old. People are not going to, yeah. Uh, no, I don't think so. You're nuts. You know, that's, uh, so it's just not generally accepted. Now I think everybody should be helped. You know, I think alien abduct abductees should be helped. I think obviously the combat vets should be helped and all other survivors of any kind of traumatic uh, event, you know, which could be rape or, or, uh, you know, uh, child molestation or natural disasters where people have seen their houses ripped apart in front of them, you know, stuff like that. Um, or people have been in horrible auto accidents where people they know are killed and, you know, that type of thing. That's all trauma inducing or trauma, uh, you know, traumatic uh, uh, events that can lead to PTSD. But um, yeah, so I, I, that's a very important point. And the Ciro group is good because people get together and can share in a, uh, in a very safe space. Nobody's judging anybody in a Ciro group. You know, nobody's saying, oh, that's ridiculous. That can't, you know, can't be. So you find like-minded individuals, similar experiences, and it helps. It's very therapeutic. And are there uh, Ciro groups all over the country or like, cause like, I was just wondering, like, I live in Pennsylvania, for example. So yeah. I, I don't know, I have 3000 subscribers, so I don't know where they're from, but you know, a lot of people just stumble upon my videos. I was saying, mm -hmm. what if an abductee stumbles across <clears throat> this video? What would you tell them if they were going through trauma to, to how to seek out help? I would, I, I would contact uh, Yvonne Smith or if they want, they can start with me. If they want to start with somebody they know, because I've been on your show and I will get them in touch with Yvonne Smith. Now, Yvonne Smith's here in Southern California, but she has online uh, Ciro meetings once a month. So members can be anywhere. I mean, we have members in Indiana and, you know, all across the, the country in Florida, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, I know of one. So they're all, and we even have Ciro members in France, you know, they internationally. So now the physical meetings that we're going to start doing again, because, you know, the restrictions were, well, they were lifted. Now they might be placed back, yeah. but uh, <clears throat> they, they, we have physical meetings here in Southern California. And sometimes we have people fly in for those, but there are these online meetings, which zoom meetings, which are very helpful for people. So if they want to, uh, you know, go to my website and shoot me an email, my, my, uh, my emails on there, I'll put them in touch with Yvonne because Yvonne is, she's just the sweetest person and she's been doing this for 30 years and she will, she will uh, help people. She and will help people. Awesome. Yeah. And, and a lot of people are suffering and they're suffering needlessly because there is, there is a support group that, that is, you know, that is there I, for them. I totally agree. Cause a lot of people, you know, a lot of times a contactee has nowhere to go. It's like you said, they, they, I, I think you kind of just said this, like, but I'm just blatantly saying it. They, they, they literally have nowhere to go because they could be laughed at by their family. 
they, they're laughed at by their friends. You know, they're yeah. told it's a lie, it's a joke, or no, it's not a lie. It's a, it's, it's it's fake. Your sleep yeah. paralysis. You're making it up. You know, yeah. you know. Try to take. And then they go see a psychiatrist, and they'll put them on insane medications that. Yeah. You know, so it it could go really far as far as like trauma. trauma. Yeah. I could see that developing. So then people just uh, isolate and they keep it into themselves, which then just uh, makes it harder to process the the trauma. So I, I think it's very important to talk to like-minded. We have wonderful people in our group that are very nice and they uh, support each other. And, and Yvonne is like the, uh, kind of like a, in the Cub Scouts, we had a den mother, you know, she's like the den mother, you know, for the, yeah. the Cub Scouts, you know, Kate takes care of everybody. And, and she's a licensed uh, hypnotherapist, too, so she can do that if people want to go further and recover. You know, I've done four uh, hypnotic regressions with her, which helped kind of develop the whole big picture story rather than just snippets and bits of conscious memories. I've been able to fill in the, the bigger picture so she can do that. If pe- people don't have to do that, but she's there for that if they if they want to. And um, I, I think that's that's so important for so for those people that are listening, you know, uh, they can contact me or they can go directly to the CERO page, C E R O, Close Encounter Resource Organization, and get a hold of uh, Yvonne, or they can email me if they go to my website. Uh, so that I'll, I'll be, I'll, I'll you know, more more, or even Terry. I know Terry's been on your show, so he he loves to help people too. He's helped a lot of people. Yeah, he he has all those stories in the back of his book about the yes. abduction, the different people that have their abduction stories, and mm-hmm. he's had he. I think he got fifteen hundred emails. He told me yes, that yes, amazing. He, he did. Like you know, like I I think that's really amazing that he took the time out to talk to those people, and some of those stories are just mind blowing. You know. Yeah, yeah, you know they are, and and uh, I I'm optimistic. Well, well, let's go back to this. What you said earlier, you haven't had anything paranormal. Now, I I, I teach uh, a paranormal history course at my college. Wow, in addition to my, in that's addition really to my cool. history courses, and and nobody's more surprised than I was when it was authorized because it had to be authorized all the way up to the board of trustees, and these are elected officials that. You know, they're they're very, uh, you know, they don't make random, you know, frivolous decisions. So they had to think about it. And they said, yes, you can do this uh, paranormal course. Um, and one, uh, we do experiments, we do, I bring in guest speakers, we talk about different types of paranormal things, including alien contact. And I, I lump it all together. And I'll get to that in a little bit. But the, uh, uh, the, the main th- reason people are there is so they can share in a safe place you know people are going to believe them and they're going to listen to them and not mock them or make fun of them but um one of the experiments we do because i do have skeptics that take the course and i also have people who say they've never had a paranormal experience so um i i I asked the students on the first day i say have you ever felt like somebody was staring at you and you turned around and somebody was staring at you and they were staring at you i said how did you know that you, do you have eyes in the back of your head? No, I think everybody's had that experience. And yeah. that, that's, actually a, that's actually a test that we do. So in the class, we pair off. We have one person turn their back to the other. The other's looking at the back of their head. And they either stare at them for 10 seconds or they don't stare at them for 10 seconds. Either way, they don't, the other person doesn't know. And then after 10 seconds, I say, okay, were you being stared at or not? And the person generally gets it right. Even people who say they've never had any paranormal experiences, because this is a basic thing that we all have. 
all, all of us have some kind of paranormal abilities and we've had paranormal experiences that we may not even consider paranormal. Like people get the heebie-jeebies, right? They get their stomach. It feels funny. That I'm not going to go into that store right now. I'm going to stay in my car for a moment. And then they find out later something terrible happened. And they just had this instinct or people call it instinct. You know, I'm just, maybe I shouldn't go there or maybe I should wait, or maybe I shouldn't do that. That, that is all, that's all paranormal. How about this? I, I, I wanted to bring this up. I didn't want to interrupt you. Um, mm -hmm. I, sometimes I, I'll be at my computer and I'll think there's a spirit in the room because I'll get a tingling up my spine, like somebody's watching me, but nobody will be there. So right. it's very weird. Have you ever had people have things like that happen? Yeah. And, and you know, the, the thing is, is that uh, the spirits are around us all the time. We're never free from them wherever you go in the room where I am in the room where you are, we walk outside. You know, if I go on my spirit walk and I want to talk to Anzar or somebody else, there's native American spirits wandering up and down the road where I, you know, and it's, it's just, if you get into that meditative state, then you start to see this, you start to hear it. Now, uh, what you have to do in a meditative state is you have to, uh, I always do protection. So I don't get overwhelmed by all this, going on you have to kind of narrow it down so uh i i'm able to control the environment a little bit so i don't get like a thousand people who are passed on who desperately want to talk to somebody in the in our world uh and pass on messages to their loved ones that they don't all rush me at the same time kind of like uh the the beatles in their heyday you know it's like you yeah. know all those those crazy girls would go after them and and they'd hurt them you know sometimes but not oh, that yeah. they meant to they just love them to death you know so they and that's kind of how it is so you have to protect yourself but yeah everybody's had a a, a paranormal experience and and or one that's kind of common that i i mentioned that uh have you ever thought um in your head you're thinking of a song right like it's you can almost hear the song and then you turn on the radio and by God, that song is playing on the radio. It's like, how did you know that that song was on there? That's that's pretty common. People have say that to me all the time. Even people who say they've never had paranormal experiences. Sometimes these things go by so quickly, you don't even think about it. Deja vu can be paranormal as well. And almost everybody, I think maybe 80% of the people have had deja vu experiences. Yeah, so I, I find that very weird. I don't know how that this happens. I, I, I don't know if it's mm -hmm. all intuition or, or, you know, I mean, because I would say there's, you know, there's paranormal occurrences and then there's um, intuition and psychokinesis, more stuff that ends up with like consciousness. And yeah. the, the things with, with consciousness, I'm very interested in. Like, did you ever hear about that book um, that I can't remember who wrote it, but it's called The PK Man? I interviewed yes. this guy on it. And Jeffrey Mishlove. Yeah, I, I interviewed Dr. Mishlove on my podcast. about, mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think that was amazing. Some of the stuff mm -hmm. the PK man was able to do. Yes. Yeah, it's it's kind of scary because we're we're all just kind of frail human beings with the uh, and you give us that kind of power. And it's probably it didn't go well for him for uh, Ted Owens was his name. And yeah. it didn't go well for him. I think it kind of destroyed him in the end. And he even did some mean stuff to Jeffrey, who was his friend, researching him. And I guess Jeffrey did something that Ted didn't like. So he he did something kind of mean to Jeffrey. And Jeffrey got very, very sick. And all of a sudden, Ted called him up and said, hey, I'm really sorry I caused you to be sick. I shouldn't have done that. And 
So it, it's like he didn't have the discipline for the amount of power that he had, and it ultimately destroyed him. I mean, even the government, who could have obviously wanted to use him for psychic uh, spying and, you know, the, the, the sp uh, Stargate project they had, they said he was too undisciplined. They didn't want to work with him. He was like dealing with dynamite or nitroglycerin, you know, it was just too much. But it was very real. And, uh, and, and Jeffrey studied him for like 10 years. It was, it was pretty awesome. But see, the, it comes back to this. And I, this is how I kind of un understand all this stuff. The spirit world, the alien world, and the quantum world, the, uh, the quantum world of subatomic particles, it's all really the same thing. It's operating in the same realm. And uh, David Bohm, the American physicist, said there are three levels of reality. There's the, uh, uh, the explicate order or the explicate reality, which is our everyday subjective reality like we have right now. Then there's the objective reality or the implicate order, which is the quantum realm where spirits reside, where aliens can maneuver and pop in and out of our reality at, at will. And then above that is the one consciousness, the mind of God, you know, whatever people want to call it. That is the highest level which is called the super implicate order. So, so I, I that's kind of how I, I see how the, how this is working. So when people like for ghosts, for, you know, people, some people say, Oh, you know, I, I believe in ghosts, but I don't believe in aliens, you know, because that's just too much. But when you think about it, when a ghost appears, they appear out of nowhere and they vibrate into our reality. We see them, they do whatever they're going to do. Then they go through a window, a door, they go through a salt, the ceiling, whatever they psh, disappear. The same thing when you hear people talking about aliens, they vibrate into our reality out of out of nowhere, out of thin air, then they can uh, vibrate out again. They, they they can go through walls. They can even take people through walls and ceilings. Um, what about demons? What do you think they are? I mean, like what, they're, what? they're they're real. They're uh, they're also in that realm as well. Uh, luckily, there aren't as many of them uh, as th there are demonic entities, and I ha I have had those experiences too, which are very very frightening. And to be avoided. It? I'd really love to hear it. Yeah, they're, they're to be avoided at all kinds. Well, I'll tell you, this is kind of a, I tell this as a cautionary tale. I was on a, a one of these, uh, I think it was, uh, yeah, it was on, I was on Coast to Coast the first time uh, uh, with George Norrie. And I, uh, some guy called me up. He said he's a, he's a film producer. And he said, I want to fly you to Chicago to test your psychic abilities. I'm going to take you to different, paranormal sites and see what you pick up on i'll film you have you mic'd up and see and then if it works out and then i will feature you in this documentary that i'm going to make and i said i i was like oh wow they want to film me so i got all this you know like i'm going to show him what a great psychic you know what i have you know to offer and so he flew me and my wife out to chicago took me to different places and I wasn't very on, you know, not everybody's on point all the time. So I was, I was picking up on stuff. Like we went to an old graveyard on a country road and I picked up on some stuff. And then finally he said, okay, I'm going to take you to this place. Took me to the South side of Chicago, very bad neighborhood. <clears throat> we pulled into an Aldi's parking lot and I, I was feeling the pressure. He was very disappointed with me. He thought I had more abilities, you know, than he had seen. <clears throat> so I was really going to really really hit and hit this one out of the park right so i i got out of the car i do what i i didn't even do my regular protection that i do 
with my spirit guides. I didn't pray anything. I just walked out and opened myself up. I like a big radar dish, you know, and instantly I saw like a black and white movie, you know, one of those old herky jerky black and white film reels of uh, uh, horses and buggies and people in dark clothing. They were just coming and going really fast, you know, very hyperkinetic. But there was one guy in front of me who um, wasn't moving. He was just staring at me. And he had a, a, a bowler hat, a curly mustache, and dark kind of piercing eyes. And he was just staring at me. And he was freaking me out. Then all of a sudden, psh, that just disappeared. He was gone. Everybody's gone. So I had to reconnect. So I walked into this alleyway. And I was about to touch this old tree because I like to touch solid objects that have been there a long time because I think they retain energy and history. And so I was about to touch this old tree when all of a sudden I was driven into the ground. I mean, just like I was like I was in the NFL and I was tackled by a bunch of defensive linemen. And I'm a big guy. I'm six, three, about 275. So it takes a lot to bring me down. But I was like a little child. I was driven down into the into the ground so violently that I injured my knee and hyperextended my left toe. I was just driven down so quickly. And the really, the worst thing about it, other than the physical pain, was the fact that I was on the ground and I couldn't get up. It's like I lost my will to live. It's like I was giving up. My, my life force was flowing out of me. And I started to see under the ground all these men, women, and children that were being tortured. And they were in agony. And they were like reaching up to me, trying to pull me down into the, like this dungeon. And, you know, it was just, it was horrific. And uh, finally, oh I was... I was able to pull myself up and all this time I was mic'd up. He wasn't filming me because something was going on with the camera. So he was in the car screwing around with the camera, but he had me mic'd up. So he heard me describing all this. He comes running uh, out and he says, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm injured. And I, I got to get out of here. This is terrible. You know, this, uh, why did you bring me here? This is a horrible place. And so we got into the, he said, yeah, I feel funny too. You know, let's, let's get out of here. So we got into the car. We started driving away. And I told him, I said, don't ever bring me to a place like this. I, you know, only thing he told me is that it was, there was a paranormal, you know, that was kind of dark. That's all he said. I had no other warning than that. Um, and I said, what was this place? And he said, that was the site of the uh, murder hotel that was built by Dr. H.H. H. Holmes, America's first serial killer. Oh, he had built in the 1890s. So what I was seeing was the 1890s, right? The 1890s, he built this hotel. And it was built expressly to capture people and torture them and kill them and dismember them in this in these various chambers, including this dungeon kind of thing that he had built. And it was right there where this happened to me. So the the demonic energy that drove him to do these terrible things was still alive there. And it was and it was hurting people and it was hurting me. I was physically and psychically attacked because I didn't protect myself. I can only blame myself. Now I could say this guy should have told me, but he was, you know, he's a, a film producer. He wanted a, a big show, you know, he wanted something. And uh, so I kind of got bushwhacked. And um, if I would have known it was that site, I would have made sure, well, I might not have done it. And that's for one. And secondly, I would have made sure I was protected. I wouldn't have just gone in there trying to impress this guy. How do you, uh, how do you, how like someone like me who doesn't have the the most um 
psychic experience, how would I, but if I, I wanted to open myself up to something paranormal, how do you protect yourself? Like, for example, I'll give you an example. I was going to buy a scrying mirror, but then I was told by a lady who was a Wiccan who I had on the show, she told me, don't get into mirror magic at all. She said, mirror magic's really bad, but I wanted to experiment with it because I was listening to old Art Bell shows and I mm-hmm. heard that if you line up a couple mirrors a certain way, you can look into it and you can actually go into a mirror or, or here's another fun example. You can put the mirror somewhere and if you put a portrait in front of the mirror and then you, you focus on it, you can go into that portrait. You know, so there's a lot of you yep. know, cool things that can be done with mirror magic, but I was strictly warned away from it from a witch. And she told me that people with 30 years worth of magic experience were not doing that kind of stuff. So she said it would not be safe for me to open myself up to such things. So that's why I kind of asked, like, how do we protect ourselves? Like, if mm-hmm. we're going to get into a paranormal occurrence. Well, first, first of all, it, if it's something that you're interested in, find somebody who's very trustworthy to help you kind of dip your toe in the water and start off with something, you know, that's, that's pretty, uh, you know, benevolent, you know, some kind of at the, at the maybe the worst case would be kind of an annoying spirit, not something demonic. You don't want to go right for the demonic, you know. That's because yeah. that's like the major leagues. You want to you want to work your way up through little league, you know, and all the all the different levels uh, before you get to that level. And uh, so you have to start small. Get people that are trustworthy, that are experienced to help, and then protect yourself. Now, whatever your tradition is, I don't know what your tradition is. I I grew up in the Norwegian Lutheran Church, so I I do prayers. Uh, I do a lot of praying, uh, and especially before I, I open myself up for spirit communication. And um, I also have two spirit guides that help me that are kind of like bouncers. One of them's more angelic. The other one's kind of a Native American looking dude. And he's kind of like the bouncer. He doesn't say anything, but he doesn't allow anybody in that's going to harm me uh, when I open amazing. myself up. So I, I have to do that. And, and when I do that, I don't have any problems. But like I said, in the south side of Chicago, I didn't take the time to do either of those things. So I was on my own and I got bushwhacked, you know, really good. And it was residual, too, because I went to teach my class, my paranormal class, when I got home from Chicago. And I had uh, two ladies, three ladies in that class who were professional psychics. Uh, And I walked into the classroom and they were like, looking at me. I hadn't even told them the story yet of what happened to me in Chicago. And they were like, dude, what's wrong with you? There's something, there's really bad energy around you. Are, are, you know, and one of them got physically ill, had to go outside and thought she was going to throw up. And, oh my God. And, and, and then I told them the story and they said, man, you got some negative residual stuff on you. And I, I really felt that way too. So I had to go to a, a Peruvian shaman that I know, and she did uh, some cleansing stuff. And it, I, I walked in there kind of feeling really heavy. And I walked out like, wow, that was a a burden lifted, you know, Uh, it was so strong. So, yeah. And and the best thing is to just, uh, you know, if somebody tells me, hey, you know, you're psychic, you should go into this house because we think there's a demon in there. I'll say, no, I'm not going in there. I'm sorry. There are people who will that are specialized in that, but that's not what I'm going to do because I know what my limitations are and I know what I want to do and what I don't want to do. So. I'm I'm not an expert on mirror uh, magic, but the idea 
with the mirrors, if you line them up a certain way, is a way to for you to enter into a meditative state where you start to enter into that implicate order, where you start to see the world differently, other dimensions and things like that. You might see things, portraits moving, you know, there's all kinds of stuff you could see. And, and uh, I heard if you're you, not, you see the future and the past too. There the if you're, yeah. And, and if you're not prepared to handle it and have a way back, uh, you know, that could, you know, that could be disastrous. So I, I would take that lady's warning seriously. Uh, if you're going to do something like that, to find people who have been doing it for a very long time and can help and maybe start very small um, and then try to see if that's something that you're really, you know, interested in. And I had one professional psychic tell me, he said, you know what, Bruce, uh, you're as psychic as you need to be. <laughs> that's pretty cool. <laughs> so there are limitations, you know, there are certain yeah. things you don't want to go above, you know, the, the, you know, what your limitations are, and, and, unless you do some real serious training, then you get to it. But, you know, like the old shaman's path, you know, the in Native American society or in any uh, traditional society is always a very tortured path. I mean, they, these people suffer a great deal uh, to become shamans. You know, they, they don't just like do a correspondence course and, you know, type in their name and in the Internet and get a certificate or something. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a torturous path they have to go on. And a lot of people just are not willing to do that. And I don't blame them. I mean, that is. Like I said, I wouldn't, you know, I mean, there are people who handle demonic stuff. I have a friend of mine who's a, uh, uh, he, he's not part of the Catholic Church, but he's an exorcist. That's what he does. And he's out of Las Vegas, which I'm sure that's a very busy place for exorcisting you know, <laughs> over yeah. there, uh, having been to Las Vegas a few times. But um, he, he knows how to handle that stuff. And that's his business, you know, he, and he's equipped to do it. And he wants to do it. He wants to help people, you know, so that I want to help people too, but I, you know, that's out of my wheelhouse of expertise, you know, so. I wanted to ask you, um, this has something kind of to do with Anzar, but um, when, because you're a PhD in history, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and um, so, but you do the paranormal history as well. Did, mm -hmm. did, have you ever studied, well, I'm, I'm sure you came across them, the Sumerian literature, the Sumerian yep. uniform tablets, and the Anunnaki, and yep. is that something you would teach in your regular history class or in your paranormal history class? We we talk about it in the in the paranormal history class. I don't because I teach modern U.S. history. It doesn't oh, really it's modern U.S. history. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Although I I do teach about when I do teach early American history, we talk about you know the spiritualist movement and how it's tied into uh, the women's movement in the 1800s and also the abolitionist movement. Uh, it's all tied together. We, we were the center of the spiritualist movement in the entire world. You know, it started with the Fox sisters, the rapping, you know, in their house that they were in, all that stuff. And then there were mediums everywhere and people were having seances. That started here. And then it went to England and around the world. I mean, there was ancient shamanism, you know, from ancient times, but that in the modern history, that's kind of where it took fire here. Where did it, uh, where did it exactly start, the spiritualist movement? And I think it was the 1820s in upstate New York with the Fox sisters. They heard rapping in the in the house they were in, and it turned out there was some. I guess somebody had been killed and buried in the in the bottom basement of their house, and it was that spirit. So they would ask it questions, and it would answer with knocks. And then they got very famous, and uh, people were seeking them for help and you know guidance and connecting to their deceased spirits or whatever. 
they were touring, I think, around the country. And in those days, um, also newspapers, there, there was a lot more newspapers than now. There, Every little town, little dusty town had a newspaper. A lot of the stories have to do with spiritualism in the 1800s. I mean, it's pretty amazing. You go back and look at it. It's all about seances and spirit. You'd think everybody was a witch or something, you know, and it was really, it's really interesting. Do you remember uh, the Salem witch trials too? Uh, in early American history, we, we, we do. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, and it still goes on today in certain traditional societies. There are people burned as, as witches, you know, really? because they, in, in people the, are afraid in, in some uh, traditional societies. Yeah. Wow. I didn't it's know that was going on. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty, pretty scary. You know, people are afraid of what they don't understand. And, yeah. uh, and that's one of the things they're afraid of is this un, unknown, unseen force out there, you know, that that the dead will be able to communicate with us. And I because it happened to me at such a young age, you know, my first paranormal experience was at age four. And my whole life has been paranormal. A lot of weird things, high strangeness the whole time. Uh, I'm kind of used to it. It's not that it's not surprising or doesn't frighten me sometimes, but I, I know what it is. You know, I, I oh, I've had that similar experience so this is kind of like that and maybe there's a little new variation on it but uh i don't freak out about it you know i've, your, I've had your family contactees or did your family have paranormal experiences or anything like that i i know my mom was psychic because we used to read uh, do telepathy together with a, a regular deck of playing cards we would practice <laughs> telepathy and she was really good uh and so she i could talk to her about my experiences and and she was okay with it um, so like I had invisible playmates, not invisible to me, but invisible to others. And I would tell her about it. And she said, that's fine. And, you know, I'd go to school and I'd talk about them and the teacher would say, that's very, very bad. You should, that's just made up. You're lying. You're making that up. So she taught, she told me, Hey, it's true. You just can't tell certain people. Some people are not going to listen. So you got to be careful who you tell this to. So I always kept that with me, uh, that it was okay because my mom uh, was accepting of it. And she, yeah, she wasn't a practicing psychic, but she was very good. So, and I think her mother was as well. I never met her mother, my, uh, you know, my grandmother, but um, apparently she, she was as well. So it kind of goes through bloodlines, but I really believe that everybody has psychic abilities. They, it's just kind of latent. It's just kind of hidden because we've been uh, from a very young age, uh, we've been told that it's bad and that's not true and it's not real. And uh, either through society or school or organizations or whatever, sometimes our own parents uh, or others, neighbors, they'll, they'll convince us that it's not true. So then people just kind of, okay, it's not true. And then they don't, don't believe it until something happens and then it shakes their belief system. You know? And uh, as my spirit friends say, experience leads, experiencing is believing and believing is experiencing. And yeah. uh, the more experiences you have, the more you believe. It's kind of like the old knot hole in the fence. You know, I always talk about that with my students about perspective. And where I come from in Seattle, we had these cedar fences and they had knot holes. And when you're a little kid, you can't see over the fence, right? So you look through the knot hole. Well, with every paranormal experience, that knot hole gets bigger and bigger and bigger until you see a much bigger picture of what's possible. And then it doesn't freak you out anymore. I, I wanted to go over one more thing with you before I, I, I know we've been going an hour and I don't want to take a lot of your time, but I wanted to get your opinion on this because you are your history teacher and you have students like I've noticed that America, we, 
like if you look at America back in like the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, it seemed like we were more united and we were more patriotic. And you don't have to be patriotic to be, um, it was a different kind of patriotic. Like it was like a deep love for America. Like now it seems like people just say they're patriotic to do it because they say they're, they like Trump or something like that. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It, it doesn't seem real. A- anyway, well, maybe they are. I, I don't know. I can't judge people, but it seemed like it seemed different. And, and I don't, I, I feel like we're, we're divided in society. And I know this is off topic, but it, it's a good hit question to ask a history teacher, because I wanted to gauge your perspective on what you see from students as far as like patriotism, um, uh, love for country, uh, and, and um, what they think about the whole situation of, of the political mess we're in, because I'm not political at all. I, I don't follow either path, the left or the right. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just don't, I, I, I think they're all devils. You know what I mean? Like, but I, I do love my country. And like I said, I have a deep respect for the military. So mm-hmm. I, I want to see if other people feel that way because it seems like it doesn't to me. Well, they, you know, it's interesting because young people, I think they're great. I, if, I, I, if I didn't think they were great and have some kind of hope for the, our young generation, I, I wouldn't be teaching. I would just, you know, say that's it. But they're, I think they, they're very confused about what to believe in. The world was a lot simpler in many ways in the 1970s. Um, and to give you a statistic, and I think this says a lot about government and patriotism. In the 1970s, about 65% of our Congress were veterans. That's yeah, that 65%. Sense. Yeah. Now, now I think it's less than 10%, less than 10% have actually served in the military. Now, not to say that a civilian person with no military experience can't be patriotic or can't love their country or can't, you know, be a very wonderful, you know, politician or, or, or you know, uh, lawmaker. But there's something about the people who have been in war, they've seen the worst of it. And they've learned how to work together with diverse groups of people. And, you know, and, and they, uh, you know, they, they know where the reality begins and the, and the BS ends, you know, I mean, yeah. they, and they have, they know they have to work together because otherwise you're not going to survive in combat as a one, one man army, you know, or whatever. So I think that's part of the problem. And uh, you know, that I, I think, you know, some I, I've always, and I know it's not popular, but this idea of national service, I think is very important. It doesn't have to be military. Like in the, where my parents came from in Norway, they have national service. Everybody has to do two years. Now you can do it in the military. You can work. Like I had some cousins who didn't want to, you know, they were uh, conscientious objectors. So they didn't want to be in the military, didn't want to handle guns. So they uh, were put to work for two years, uh, uh, as uh, janitors in a mental hospital. It was a tough job. I mean, it was a really tough, but they, they did it for the government, for the state. They were doing it for their fellow citizens. You know, they did this hard job. So they had to do it. It was compulsory. They had to do it or they could be in the military. And I think that that gives you a sense of you're part of something bigger than yourself and you have responsibilities. I think I, that would give people a lot of hope here. And that would, that would yeah. actually create more jobs and that yeah. would give people more hope. What do you think? I, I think it would, you know, people are, a lot of young people are lost. They're kind of adrift. And I think some of it's because there's so many options. And the other thing is because it all seems like everything is, is, is uh, 
like fixed already, like the like the playing field is tilted, you know, and that the rich are always going to, you know, get richer and the poor get poor. And it just feels, you know, this is similar to how everyday working class people felt in in 1900. So over 120 years ago, they felt that way. And then something called the progressive era started where we had a new, a very strong president came in, Theodore Roosevelt, and he started the whole thing. And everybody realized that people were sick and tired of being sick and tired and they started to work together and they instituted things like child labor laws because children were working in coal mines and dying in coal mines. They instituted the women's vote. They instituted uh, direct senatorial elections, you know, all these different things, the, the pure food and drug act. So the government would be responsible for regulating patent medicines, you know, all kinds of things came out of that progressive era that were helpful to everybody, every single person, man, woman, and child. And uh, uh, that's, that's because people realized that they had a responsibility. And I, I think the problem is, and, and I think uh, uh, the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi, you know, the guy who led India to freedom, his grandson named Aran Gandhi once said, he said, people are always, the problem is people are always demanding their rights but few people are demanding their responsibilities. And, and I think it comes down to that, whether it's national service or, you know, we got to work together. We can't, you know, uh, well, my, I think my mom who had great folk wisdom, she said, I'll say it in Norwegian and then I'll translate it. She always said, den dårlig fugl som skitiset eget der. And what it means is, and you maybe heard this uh, growing up too, uh, it's a bad bird that defecates in his own nest. Yeah, yeah. That's not right, you know. You yeah. you got to clean the nest. You got to keep it tidy. You got to work together. You know, you don't start talking bad about, you know, and and not offering any solution. It's one thing to say, you know, this is wrong. This should be changed. Okay, then you go out and do something about it. But to just say you hate who we are or hate our country and I, I, that I think a lot of veterans have a problem, but not just veterans, a lot of people have a problem with that. You know, it's like um you know, don't dirty our own nest. You know, there's a lot of people, foreign countries who, you know, governments, not the people necessarily that are trying to, you know, cause dissension among us. And I think that we go down that road and we start believing, you know, what, what, what this propaganda is. And I think that it's, it's very bad. And, and politicians don't help because they tend to have very short-term solutions to try to get them elected. So they'll pick up on one little sound bite and they'll use that and I'm talking yeah, about those on the left, those like on the right. Helping. They're not helping. You know, they're not, yeah. they're not helping because they're looking out for their own interests. Like they should be yeah. looking out for the interests of the, 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 the vested interests of the country. If they really yeah. want to serve the country, like they should not, you know, do it by, they shouldn't do it by stepping over bodies. They should do yeah. it by, you know, actually being proactive and helping. So Art yeah. Bell once said that he said politicians yeah, get into service by stepping over bodies. Yeah, there, there is there is some there's a lot of truth to that. And and I had a political scientist once told me he he said nobody runs for office who isn't an egomaniac already. That's totally true. That's totally true. <laughs> look at I mean, look at Trump. You know what I mean? Like yep. I, I think a guy told me um he, he uh no, I listened to a podcast. I'm sorry, it was I listened to Conspiracy Social Club and they were talking about they said that um when they had his dad worked for the foreign council of foreign relations, the mm -hmm. CFR. 
at mm-hmm. the guy's dad. His name's Brian Callen. He's a comedian. Mm-hmm. And he said that when his dad walked into Trump's office, or his dad said this because they had him on the podcast, he said that Trump had a picture of himself on every magazine that he'd ever <laughs> been in on his wall. So that, <laughs> that shows you the ego right there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's one thing to be proud of yourself or proud of what you've got. It's another to be consumed by it. You know, and that's uh, and I think that's true for, you know, he's probably a, a little bit beyond just an egomaniac. There's another classification called a megalomaniac. That's even beyond that. And even the people who who love him and and think he's was, you know, great and everything, uh, you know, even they will concede. Yeah, the guy's an egomaniac. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. it's yeah. they they, they won't deny that. About him. He's just an egomaniac. Yeah. He, he, he's not Mother Teresa, you know, let's say, but but none of them are. But yeah. some are, you know, more than others. But, uh, you know, but it also on, on balance, um, you know, the uh, 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 there were some things that he did that probably were the right things to do yeah. at the time. So but, you know, the thing is, in history, we tend to look at people if they make one mistake or two mistakes, even the good stuff they did, you can't talk about it. Yeah. And, and, and that's unfortunate in history, like uh, from, you know, Martin Luther King, for instance, uh, when I talk about him in my history class, uh, I talk about every, all the wonderful things he did, right? But I also talk about the fact he was not a very faithful husband to his wife, you know, but does that erase all the good that he did? It's certainly, you know, it, it, I feel sorry for Coretta Scott King. I mean, you know, yes, she was married to Martin Luther King, wonderful man. But he wasn't the greatest husband. He wasn't the most faithful husband. So does that erase everything, you know, that that he did that was good? I think all of us have done good and we've done things that are not so good. But on balance, have we tried to do more good than harm? And um, I, I, I think that's to be realistic, you know, to to, you know, just say everybody has to be perfect. Otherwise, we can't even, you know, look up to them. You know, I, I mean, I think we live in a world of duality. You know, we, yeah. we we're, we're born into this world of duality already, you know, so it's natural to do positive and negative things and then try to, if you're a good person, like you said, you try to do more positive than negative. But like I said, we're, we're kind of born into, I don't know, it's almost, it's almost, I think it's taught by, if you want to say by the aliens, the angels or, or the gods or whatever, you could say that they taught us, they, 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 they brought us duality to, so we could experience it. So our consciousness could experience it. I don't know if that's the right. No, I, th- I think, you know, and one of the things Anzar told me in 1997, when I had a vision of him, uh, he told me, he said, there, there is no light without darkness. Because otherwise, what is light? You know, you have to know what darkness is to know what light is. There's there's no good without evil. You know, there's no uh, pain and suffering without joy and ecstasy. You know, I mean, there's you, you don't know what it is until you've experienced it. And so, you know, those are the things that you, you we learn and you learn which is the better decision point, you know, which is the better path to take. And, uh, you know, back to this responsibility thing, one thing that I've taught my kids is uh, it's very basic. You know, I have four children, two grandchildren. I'm, you know, kind of helping with the grandchildren because they live in Ohio. But uh, the, uh, uh, you know, I, I always say, don't don't be a, a bully and don't be a victim. It really comes down to that. You know, be a decent person. 
you know, I don't get. I heard you quote Bradley Cooper, and I was yep. I was I listened to a yep. podcast you did. And yep. You quoted Bradley Cooper from uh, the American Sniper. Yeah, the sheepdog. Sheepdog. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I love that. That's amazing. Yeah, don't don't be the sheep. Don't be the uh, wolf. Be the sheepdog. You know, yeah. that's what you should aspire to be. And that, you know, you look out for the, you know you look out for those that are that are disadvantaged or that are vulnerable, and you protect them and you protect yourself. And, uh, you know, you don't use any kind of excessive force unless there's absolutely, it's absolutely necessary. And I mean, I'm a very peaceful person, but, you know, I was in the military for six years. I worked in a prison in the military. I was a helicopter pilot. I worked for uh, a year and a half in a civilian maximum security prison. I've seen a lot of terrible things and I've defended myself against extreme violence. You know, I've been attacked and, uh, you have to be able to defend yourself. You have to be able to, but you don't want to go any farther than that. There's, it's not necessary to go farther than that. Just protect yourself, protect the vulnerable to protect your loved ones. And then, uh, you know, and then try to live in, in peace. You know, that, that's, you know, don't be a bully and don't be a victim. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, um, do you want to tell everybody uh, what real quick, because um, we've talked about Anzar, but could you talk yeah. about, what the book ends on the presenter is about and, and yeah sure yeah just it's uh it's my fourth paranormal book so i did the timeless trilogy i wanted to focus on anzar because he is this ancient alien mystic who helped me in 1964 came to me in a vision in 1997 and then i've been in constant communication with since uh for the last three years and i i told you i documented all this communication that i've had with him so the book anzar the progenitor well, the progenitor means the first. It's so he was the one who first gave us a nudge as human beings. He, and he's giving us a nudge right now. He gives me advice and tells me things. And I share that in the book. But in this book, the first part of it uh, goes over my theory. Uh, there's 270 footnotes in there. This I did research on you know how the alien world the spirit world and the quantum world are really the same thing so i build a case for that and then this the the bulk of the book are, are these transcripts and they're chronological uh from three years ago all the way till up until may when i published the book and of what anzar was telling me what i asked him what he told me the advice that he was giving the predictions that he made some of them came true uh and i also include 45 of the greatest hits, 45 of his, I think, most profound bits of wisdom, one of which I shared with you, the, uh, that technology and wisdom of the aliens is, uh, is a precious gift for all, not, not a strategic advantage for the few. So he's told me some really cool things, and I, I share that in the book, too. So it's 403 pages, so it's a long book, but it can be read in different ways. If you want to look at the theory behind everything, you read the first part. If you want to just go right to Anzar and what he's telling me, or even go to the greatest hits at the end, you can do that. Um, so, so that's what the book is. Um, and uh, I include some illustrations there that my friend Gary Dumb did of Anzar. There's a foreword by Lucinda uh, Morell, who's a, uh, a shaman uh, wait, in the native. She find you in a, and didn't she pick Anzar out in a UFO contacting meeting? Yeah, it was at a Ciro meeting. Uh, I asked Anzar to be there because I wanted confirmation from somebody else. Because even when you had a paranormal life, you always like confirmation from somebody else, corroboration. So I asked Anzar to come to the meeting. I waited till the end of the meeting. And then uh, I asked, did anybody see anything? 
And because it was a serial meeting, nobody thought I was talking about like a person sitting next to me. They knew it was something spirit wise or alien wise. So Lucinda said, yeah, who's the big native dude behind you? And uh, I said, that's Anzar. Because he sometimes appears as like a Native American. He's very tall. He's like seven feet tall. And she said, no way, that's Anzar. And she said, I got to show you something. So she pulled out her wallet and on her driver's license, her address that she lived uh, at at the time was Via de Anzar, the way to Anzar. That's amazing. That, it, it is, is so, absolutely is amazing. So amazing. So she she has seen him and communicated with him and and I have. And now Terry Lovelace, told me he was with a medium and he asked if it was okay if they contact Anzar. And I said, sure, the more people, the better, right? Because, <laughs> you know, so it's not just me and Lucinda. It's like now it's Terry and this medium that he was working with and they contacted him. And then he asked me, is it okay to talk to people about it? And I said, sure. Yeah, I think that that's great. The more people wow. that talk to him, the, the better. And uh, so anyway, that's what the book is about. It's my fourth paranormal book, but you know, it was it wasn't until 2016 I decided to start talking about this stuff openly. And the I wouldn't timeless, have... the timeless trilogy, the the, the the timeless books are about your paranormal experiences growing mm -hmm. up, right? Yeah, starting with uh, the first book, kind of puts start slowly, just with kind of ghost stuff, you know, the apparitions and that type of stuff. And then uh, the second book, uh, Timeless Deja Vu, gets a little heavier. And then the third timeless book, Timeless Trinity, I actually talk about Anzar. And then I decided I should just do a standalone Anzar book. So it's just about Anzar. So that's that's what this fourth book is. I don't know if there's going to be another one, but there are comic books I'm doing too about aliens. So that that's snark, uh, right? that's a lot of the I, snark I books. That's pretty cool. The snark. When I heard about snark, I was like, I think that is such a cool idea that this reptilian-human <laughs> hybrid comes down to Earth and the, the 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 reptilians are thinking about um colonizing earth mm -hmm. but he and he's like the he makes the decision that he likes humans right is that some yeah about? yeah because he's he's half human he has a human mother so he uh decides he likes us and he has all these adventures meeting different groups of people from homeless people to people crossing the border to goes back in time to the civil war you know talking to people i mean he has the ability to to move around not just geographically, but time and space wise. And uh, he has a, uh, the comedic relief in the comic book is the cosmic staff, who's this like uh, magic stick that he has with him that is kind of a, a, a you know, kind of a wisecracking kind of guy. Yeah. And we, we find out his origin in Snark 2, how they're connected. And then actually, I'm working on Snark 3, but before Snark 3 comes out, there's a spin off comic called Dr. Jekyll Alien Hunter that features a, uh, a, a female anthropologist who her father was studied ancient aliens and she kind of takes up his uh, cause after he dies. And so she's going around investigating all that stuff. So that I thought it'd be cool to have a comic book that would really appeal to young girls, you know, cause my comics are all ages from little kids, you know, would like them to adults. And uh, so I, th that's going to be coming out next year. And then Snark Three the year after that. So yeah, I'm I'm I love comic books. That's how I learned how to read. So I I love working with with comics. Uh, me too. I, I grew up I grew up on comics. I still have, mm -hmm. I have two comic books or two. My oldest two comic books are two Spider Mans from 1978, which are 
bits was before I was born. I was born in 1980, but <laughs> I was given them and I just always held on to them. And I have a couple Batmans from around that time. I just, I always loved comics. Like they were always just something, it was, I, I love books in general, you know? Well, send me your, uh, send me your, you know, email me your uh, mailing address, snail mail address, and I'll send you snark one. Okay, cool. Send okay. you a copy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, and then uh, and, uh, tell everybody where they can find your books and where they can find snark and stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, uh, the best place to go is just my personal uh, website, bruceolavsolheim.com and first name, Bruce, middle name, O-L-A-V, Olav. Last name Solheim, S O L H E I M dot com. And you can see all my my books, my plays, my comic books, everything is available there. Uh, for uh, all my books, you can you could also go to Amazon directly, just look up Solheim and Timeless or Anzar, you know, the progenitor. You can find that. And Snark 2 is available on Amazon, but not Snark 1. Snark 1's a collector's edition. It's uh, I had it printed myself. It was a limited print run. I got them in my my garage. So I'm going to pull out a copy for you when I get your address. And that's awesome. It'll I'll be worth yeah. it'll be worth thousands one day. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> it'll be worth sentimental value because, you know, this was an awesome podcast. I really had I, 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 I had a feeling I was going to enjoy this because I knew if you were friends with Terry that you were a, a special person. And I heard you on other podcasts and I can just tell from your book of work that you you i mean that you really are an, uh, an amazing person you're a contact oh thank you with, i mean i just uh, i appreciate it all I, I i sincerely do thank you well well thank you robert that's very nice of it you know but we're all doing our part look what you're doing you're you're presenting to the world people like uh aaron and people like terry and and many many others that you mentioned already and i i really appreciate the opportunity to share too because that we all have a mission and and we're all part of it you're part yeah. of it. I'm part of it, Terry. All these other people are part of it. And we, we couldn't do what we do without you doing what you do. We're all doing our part. That's awesome. And I, I appreciate what you do, Robert. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you again for coming on. And uh, yeah, I'll send you my address after we get off this thing here. Yeah, that'd be cool. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Good to meet Good. you.